Hey friends, just a quick note before we get into today's episode. We recorded it before we learned of the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which if you know me and Liz came as quite a shock and something we definitely want to discuss. We'll be covering that in our next episode. So until then, uh, we hope you enjoyed this one and thanks for listening. Hope you're keeping well. Okay, so welcome to week 50 of our current reality. I don't know. It was a total, that's what it feels like to me. Seriously. Um, But uh, good news is we're not really talking about COVID or we're not talking a lot about, you know, um, all the things that are wrong with the world, but we're talking about all that is right with what? Quarantine living? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the cultural touch, the cultural, the cultural achievements of the last six months. I don't know. The cultural milestones. We're we're married to our media at this point, like to Mm -hmm. the external. It's our portal. Yeah. to the external world right now. And so um, we've been in com- communication throughout the quarantine period. Uh, we we were on break with the podcast, but we were kind of earmarking and putting into a sort of discuss for later all of the major, what, cultural and um, pop culture um, phenomena that happened during the quarantine period. And, and at some point, someone's going to go back Look at this period and be like, what were people watching during this time? What were what were what was keeping people company during mm-hmm. this very um, insular and interior time in American history, right? Mm-hmm. And we got to be part of that. So, yes, we wanted to have an entire episode just devoted on that, the things that we were consuming and the things that we were deprived of being able to talk about during that time. We're all going to cover that here. Mm-hmm. How does that sound? Fabulous. Yes, yes. So what were the major things that stuck out to you during this time? Number one is The Last Dance. Can we finally talk about The Last Dance? I don't know. I think we should wait another week or so. (laughs) (laughs) So our memories of it are even fuzzier than they are right now. Uh, Oh, my God. Chris, what did you think of The Last Dance? I mean, for me, it was a blast to the past, right? It's uh, junior high for me. I remember being with all my friends. And that was like, I think, the beginning of my sports journey in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I grew up a Lakers fan. I grew up in Southern California. So the Bulls were supposed to be the team that I despised, I guess, yeah. because they were always like beating up on these post-Magic Johnson teams that weren't mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. But I remember early on, I was a kid and I had nothing but fear and envy for this team. Mm-hmm. Like they looked to me like a, I don't exactly know how old I was, what, like 10 years old mm-hmm. at the time, like anywhere between like seven to 10 years old, seven to 10 year old me was, they might've, they might've well been gods, mm-hmm. you know? And I think the last dance for me was the first time where I got to go behind the veil mm, because I yeah. never, I never had a chance to critique or like to like bring nuance to those seven to ten year old views of the Bulls. Totally. I'm like, oh, they're just inevitably going to win. They're the best team ever. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan's the greatest. And this was an opportunity to fill me in on everything I missed. Yes. So 
that was delicious. Everything like from the music to the、mm. fashion. Oh my god. To the dramas that I vaguely remember, Carmen Electra, Dennis Rodman,、mm-hmm. you know these kind of controversies I totally forgot about、um, came, you know, roaring back.、Um, I soaked up every minute of it, and I was delighted. I was delighted to hear that you were also watching because we were watching in real time together. Yes. So yes. I was curious to ask you what was the major draw for you? Why? Why of all the things that you could have watched, did you open this one? And did you also have like kind of a childhood recollection of this team?、Um, yeah, of course. So I mean, I also grew up in the Jordan era, and I grew up in Detroit. So like, I what、well, some of my earliest memories are like the Bad Boys and the Bad Boys and the Bulls always had these like super heated matchups, and I just remember like over the course of my whole childhood, there was this like you know, con- like hearing regularly about Michael Jordan and his brilliance. And how much we hated him, but also he was so brilliant. But then seeing all at once with like actual context that my you know twelve year old mind had no idea about, like it was majestic. Like the ability to watch greatness and to watch it all spliced together, like we did, and to have context for all of it, like it was just a joy to watch. And it really could have just been like a ten hour highlight reel, and it would have been fine, honestly. Like I would have watched the shit out of it anyway. But、mm-hmm. I felt like they did such a good job, like with all of the material around it as well.、Mm-hmm. Like it was just so thoroughly interviewed. Like when you land an interview with Bill Clinton, and all he gets in the final cut is a single line about meeting Scottie Pippen as a college player. Like you have truly interviewed everyone. Like you have interviewed far more people than you have time for.、Um, so I, I thought it was incredibly impressive. So of course, Michael Jordan was the star of the documentary. Obviously,、mm-hmm. were there other characters that stuck out at you that you didn't know their stories maybe as much before, but. This documentary like just brought it out, and you were like mesmerized by. Yeah, I mean, I just like you just couldn't. It was so well cast, and like that, it's documentaries. You don't get to pick your subjects in a documentary, right? But I was、mm-hmm. like, you have the hero, and you have this like perfect villain foil in Jerry. What was his last name? Jerry Kraus. Jerry Kraus. Yeah, who I knew nothing about before this, and I the. The su- the supporting cast of characters was so compelling.、Um, I really loved the deep dive into Steve Kerr.、Mm-hmm. What、yeah. a fucking incredible story! I, like, I didn't know that story. Did you? I did, I knew I did know about his dad,、mm-hmm. but I did not know that he was part of that team. Like I, you know, I only know Steve Kerr for being the coach of Golden State. Like arguably this generation's Bulls, right? But right. Just to see where he came from, and just like what a like legit decent guy he seems like,、mm-hmm. I was like that he needs his own ten hour docu series. I think.、Um, how about you? Who did you find compelling? Yeah, definitely Steve Kerr. I I was definitely I love the framing with Jerry Krause. I mean, in the end, you can almost feel the documentary feeling bad about its treatment of Jerry Krause, <laughs> and then just being like, you know what though? Yeah, he did. He did good stuff. He does too, deserve some he, credit, I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> he did some good things, but like it was just so. I felt like a little towards the end. I was a little. I felt like it was a little bit mean spirited, in, in、mm. that like it doesn't help that Jerry Krause is like this short, kind of frumpy looking executive. But then like you know all the footage is of, is of him like walking in and like 
standing next to these Adonises, these mm-hmm. the greatest athletic bodies of all time. And, you know, like just, it, you know, it just seemed like every time Michael talked to him, he was just like, like undermining him, you know, Seriously, and I, calling him short <laughs> and fat every time <laughs> and just like snickering at him and stuff. And, and like the documentary didn't really, and that was one of the criticisms of the documentary that I appreciated as well, as much as I enjoyed it and I liked it and I respected the work. Um, like it, it did deify Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had a lot of baggage too, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stuff that there was some seedy parts to his character that was a little bit glossed over, mm-hmm. I think. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, they did yeah. talk about it. They did mention it, but Michael Jordan had full opportunity to give account, like a very nice accounting of himself. And then they just left it at that. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And you know, what was amazing about the document, like probably the, like one of the most understatedly awesome things about that documentary was hmm. the footage, the actual footage. Yeah. It's almost like they knew they were going to make this documentary 30 years, be- you know, not 30 years, obviously, but like 20 years before it was actually made. Yeah. Jordan hired a crew to follow them the whole season. So how did it, how did this not come out before 2020? That is the question. I Uh think why now is the question because he's been sitting on this footage for so long. And I don't even know that Jason Hare, the director, knows why now. Because apparently I listened to the um, the after show. Jalen and Jacoby hosted a podcast after show after every episode, yeah. which was a lot of broiness. But I was like, I, I need to just suffer through this to get more content. And he was basically he asked Jordan that and Jordan did not seem excited about having this released because he felt like it wouldn't reflect well on him, which, you know, as we've said, some scenes do not reflect well on him. But for some reason, it was like. Now is the time. But, you know, maybe it was like this brilliant piece. Because if anything, Jordan is an, is a genius marketer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe he wanted to reintroduce himself to this like whole new generation of NBA fans. Yeah, right? that's true. Yeah, that's true. Because like the generation before us is now they're like fully in like the they only know LeBron. They yeah. They know a little bit about Kobe. Yeah. Right. And for them to they know the name michael jordan but it's like the same as us knowing the name of players that we've like dr j right exactly players that we've never seen actually play so i don't know maybe there was a little bit of canny about you know like oh i don't want to release this so soon after i retired right when everyone knows who i am right 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 right. that makes a lot of sense and it makes me almost wonder now that you say that like if he if like the lebron is the greatest talk started getting too ramped up too high and he was like we have to put an end to this i don't know if you watch these um ex-players that come in they're like commentators for like the current nba games uh-huh but one of the funny things is is like all these ex um players are still so competitive that they still like they still put themselves into the narrative they like oh, like, yeah. oh this guy's great but if i played during this time i would be scoring 50 points a game mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. i think paul pierce said that like like just like a week ago if i was playing in this nba i'd be averaging 50 points a game i'm like paul pierce you retired three years ago you You weren't the best player even in your own time so (laughs) why are you talking like this and pippen and jordan are definitely that right yeah but they have a they have a case they can make a case for it i would argue yeah anyway okay so the Mm -hmm. last dance 
what what else what that else? felt good by the way i am i've been wanting to have that conversation since april so i'm glad that we are we can put it to rest now um i've been watching a lot of netflix mm-hmm. um i've been catching up on shows and things that i never never would have considered watching mm-hmm. and i find myself watching including uh-huh. the surprising uh-huh. hit indian matchmaking uh, which i don't goodness. still to, to this to this day i don't know exactly what it is that made me click on this i cannot take my eyes away from oh this. my god it was it was riveting television <laughs> What what brought you to watch Indian matchmaking? I don't um, so a few people had mentioned it, and like I had seen the commercials on Netflix. You know, like Netflix shows ads now, which yeah. I don't love for its own shows. While you're waiting, um, and I've previously watched one other documentary about modern Indian matchmaking, but otherwise, oh. I know very little about it. So it was really when you mentioned it, that you had watched it, I was and that you were enjoying it. I was like, I feel like I should watch it. Um, but I think it's been a really long time since I watched a series that had cliffhangers at the uh-huh. end of every episode. Yo, so they, these cliffhangers were for they, real. Oh, my God. Oh my, I, God. I, my spouse and I could not stop. Like, <laughs> we stayed up irresponsibly late several nights in a row to like finish the whole series because we just couldn't stop. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's a world that I, again, know very little about. All of my South Asian friends are in love marriages. Um, but it was just this like very interesting commentary about how much and how little has changed in terms of dating, right? Um, the one person in India who talks about it as like Tinder premium, I was like, mm-hmm. that's like the super interesting parallel, right? Because she's not right. wrong. And then, you know, at the core of all of it is this like age old question about what makes a relationship work. Because everything can be great on paper, mm-hmm. literal paper, these biodatas. Mm-hmm. Um, but that paper doesn't capture if the person just isn't ready, like a few of the people they followed were. It doesn't capture if the person is kind of shitty Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it doesn't capture if there's going to be a spark because that's just so hard to predict. So I thought it was like fabulous television. And it was also this like very thoughtful look at like how much the process of finding a partner has changed and how little it's changed at the same time. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Did it also give you a glimpse into what like because it's been a minute since you've been on the dating scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, it was this terrible reminder of how much dating sucks. <laughs> I watched every first date fully in the fetal position, just being like, oh, my God, like, I forgot how awful this is. Things like, oh, my God, you don't like ketchup. I don't like ketchup either. That's so amazing. Oh, and I was God. like, <gasps> that's literally it. And you're like, oh, my God, what does this mean? He must be the one. It doesn't mean right. anything. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Are you talking about Nadia right now? Yes, I am talking yeah. about Nadia. Right. Bless her oh, heart. Bless, bless her sweetheart. Uh, bless her sweetheart. I hope she yeah. has, I hope she finds happiness one day. Um, what was it like for you to watch this? I mean, familiar, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not so removed from the dating scene. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had a lot of these like really super awkward moments. Um, so that I didn't really resonate with. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea of meeting someone and then having this really intense interaction right Mm -hmm. yeah like you are meeting someone and both the subtext is you're both trying to suss out if you have potential long-term like 
vulnerability and investment into each other. And you're trying to both suss that out, but you're actively trying to be cool and casual at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is goddamn exhausting, right? And it was so explicit, which was Mm -hmm. the thing that was bonkers. Like when you meet someone for the first time and their entire extended family is there. (laughs) Or when you meet someone for the first time and it's like, why did you choose a matchmaker? And it's like you're having these like very explicit conversations about wanting to find a partner on date one i'm like in some ways i guess it's refreshing because it's honest but like jesus like it just i feel like it adds this layer of like pressure on every interaction and it forces these conversations that you wouldn't normally have until what like month six totally yeah um any other characters that you were rooting for or that just really got under your skin i really honestly my favorite my favorite, I loved the cold opens that they uh-huh. did. Oh, with these, yeah, with the uh, the older couples. Yeah, who've been together for decades and how they got together. There was one couple in particular that we loved so much that we kept just re-watching their cold open over and over and over again. And we were like, how could we be friends with them? They're so awesome. Um, but Do yeah, I, yeah, it was like, I don't remember what it was. It was like, he was like, oh, I met her and everyone said that she made the best cakes in town or something. Mm-hmm. And then like you, they, they chat a little more and you hear the interviewer say like, what's your favorite thing about her? And he's like, her cakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so charming. And like, they're both like having such a good laugh about it. And I, oh God, adored them. They were awesome. Yeah. They were like yeah. my favorite immigrant auntie and uncle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. I just totally. got those vibes from them. Ah, any others for you who you were like really rooting for, or, like just freaking out about? Yeah, I was a big fan of Ankita. I liked uh-huh. that she was a feminist, number one. Um, yes. That she was from, she's from and lives in India and yet holds these views about women that I felt like were, was, was different than Aparna's like ver- version of it, I guess. Yes. Whereas uh-huh. Aparna, I feel like there was something warped about her version of things, mm-hmm. and I can see why like a lot of people resonated with her. You know, as 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 many faults as she had, she still was just herself, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I feel like Ankita, a lot of people were telling her you need to be this or that, and she had this just immediate reaction to be like, no. Yeah. You know, and she kind of like saw through it. I really like that. Yeah. What I found interesting about her, though, was that even for how feminist and progressive she was, when she was like, oh, this dude's been divorced. How dare you not tell me that? Right. I thought that was super interesting. Like the con, because it just seemed so like out of step with what you would expect with somebody who is like super progressive. You know what I mean? I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that she kind of framed it as, it would have, I think she was trying to imply that it would have been okay if she just knew it going in, but I don't yeah. think that's true. I, don't, I, I, I completely did, agree. Yeah, I, I did agree. think she had a problem with it, right? It's just also interesting when you're talking about what makes it work with a partner long term. And I mm-hmm. thought it was really interesting that you had those like long term couples that were match made and all that stuff. And yet everybody was just like, well, how tall is he? Like, that's like. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's like, it's like such a, such a cognitive dissonance. It's like, that is actually the most important thing. It's like, what? Like, I, it's so weird. But. It's, but I mean, like all of the research bears that out, which is wild. Like yeah. they've done studies that's like, in, um, women will choose a man who is like 
six feet tall and makes thirty thousand dollars a year over a man who is like five seven and makes a hundred thousand dollars a year that is so, so interesting even more than like the you know stereotypical like potential to provide like people are interested women are interested in height That's so and I think in the same way, like men also talk a big game about what they want, but ultimately it's like, is she thin? <laughs> is she pretty? Like, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. I guess that's that crosses all cultures, right? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like we could have a whole episode about Indian matchmaking. There was so much there. Right? Totally, totally. And then, yeah, uh, yeah which like, we are maybe not the two best people to be talking about, given that we're not familiar with this very familiar with this beyond what we saw but it was i thought it was a fantastic show right 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 and um i thought i i was interested in it because it like yeah it was like a just a slight behind the scenes like understanding of what happens in a culture that i don't understand Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyways that's what uh, yeah i mean like i said we can probably spend our entire time talking about that but the other major thing that we were listening to that i wanted to discuss with you of course is the podcast "Nice White Parents" by the same um, by the same team that brought us Serial? And yeah, I mean, it kind of talks talks a little bit about the issues that we started talking about in our last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I know that this is something that you're going through right now. Uh, you're having to navigate an educational system that's in crisis, and mm-hmm. in any kind of crisis, it brings out you know all of the the sort of moral and um, value issues that you have to confront as a citizen, but also a parent and navigating all that. And this podcast, I thought, does a masterful job of covering a very complex issue in a very presentable and insightful way. So I thought we could devote some time talking about Nice White Parents. And maybe we can just start about talking again about where you are with your um, children's education, what you've seen, and what has resonated with you from this podcast. Sure. So I have been complaining about the white parents where I live for months now. So the minute this podcast came out, people started recommending it to me. And mm. at first I was like, no thanks. I'm already fed up with all the nice white parents in this town. I don't need to spend my free time listening to them and thinking more about them. Um, but the recommendations kept coming, especially after I talked about my angst around this topic on the podcast two episodes ago. And maybe the most important thing was that people of color started recommending it to me. Mm. So I was like, fine, I, I give. And it was fantastic. It is like the most, one of the most well-reported and well-executed pieces of journalism I've ever come across. Mm. Like maybe maybe the one of the most important things I've ever listened to, honestly. Mm, mm. Um, And it really does hit me where I live right now. I won't rehash too much of what I said a few episodes ago, but I feel like at the core of this podcast is this tension between holding the values of public education and equity, endorsing these values versus wanting what's best for your children. Right. This is exactly the tension we were talking about a few episodes ago. And it's exactly this tension that the host of this podcast, Hannah Javi Waltz, 
is exploring through the narrative or no, through the story of this middle school in Brooklyn. Incidentally, it wasn't so long ago that I was actually walking through Cobble Hill hmm. and seeing what it was like. And so I have this like image in my head as she's reporting it. It's like, I, I am familiar with that neighborhood actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What's what, what I feel is complex are the systems and the structures that have been built upon it. But I feel mm-hmm. what was so compelling about the podcast is that it identifies something quite simple. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is reflected in this title, Nice White Parents, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's the perfect title for what she, her whole thesis is about, which is yes. essentially that the things that are plaguing educational inequity or the educational system in this country and producing these inequities, and then that has like domino effects throughout the rest of society, yes. right? Yes. Boils down to like the dominant class, the dominant race self-interest. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before in earlier podcasts this season uh, about how difficult it is when you're confronted with a group who are doing things not only for their self-interest, but for the interests of their kids, Mm -hmm. right? And I think in the first episode, this one parent, I really appreciated her voice. She was a white parent and she was having a hard time. Like you could just tell in the way she was trying Mm -hmm. to square some circles and trying to like reconcile things that were irreconcilable Yes, in that she was engaged in a letter writing campaign to like, like help integrate the schools. But once these letters, like when, once a school actually came, none of these white parents who were involved in writing these letters actually sent their kids to that school. Mm -hmm. I think what one of the parents she interviewed said was, I have these principles and these values, mm-hmm. but I don't want my kids to have to pay the cost of me upholding these values. Yes. And that right there is such a simple and yet profound explanation as to what we're seeing. And then it gets complex. And then it's like the zoning and it's the resource allocation. And then it's the policies and the Department of Ed and like, politics and all that then it gets complicated but at the root of it is this very very simple thing Mm -hmm. about like you may believe in integration but you don't want your kids to have to pay the cost of what it would mean to actually go through with integration yeah and it was i that was the money line i think from the entire series like exactly that parent that Mm -hmm. quote that you cited because i have heard the same argument for like why people insist on you know they claim to value public education will vote in support of you know will vote for proposals that give more funding but will not send their kids to public school because they do not want their kids to pay the price for their values which is this it is such a an interesting dissonance right i guess uh, the question i have for you and it's like i don't have kids and i try to reflect on what I like if I were in that position Mm -hmm. how I would respond Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and you know I'm hoping to live in a place that's magically like you know like there are three schools that can choose from that's Mm -hmm. like highly equitable Mm -hmm. highly diverse (laughs) you know smiling kids of all colors and faiths yeah looking at me you know Uh uh-huh I mean and then like I don't have to confront that decision right yeah yeah but what is your, I guess, what is your feelings? What are your reactions 
when you do come across these parents that have this, and they don't want to say it, right? But the subtext to all this is that I don't want to send my white kid to a school that where there are no white kids, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the more interesting things that they brought out, like one of the uh, research findings that they cite in this show is this idea of a bliss point. Yes. Where white parents, and they actually documented this number at 26%. Which was fascinating. <laughs> it was fascinating, yeah. And it's this idea that white parents want to have that diverse experience. I think there is an intuitive understanding that that is a good thing, mm-hmm. but they don't want their kids to be the only white kids in, let's say, an all-black school or an mm-hmm. all-black and Puerto Rican school, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if there were 26% or a bliss point, a critical mass of white kids at that school, then they're more willing to be like, let's all go in. Mm-hmm. And then you get all essentially a gentrified school. Essentially, then all these white parents start rushing in because like they find, hey, like this one school in Cobble Hill has enough white kids and it's diverse. Let's yeah. all go. And then yeah. there's this mad rush and it like ruins everything, right? Right, right, right. I don't want to say ruins. I think that's a little harsh, but like it it changes the dynamics of that school in such, and then the power dynamics then come into play as yeah. we've seen on that podcast, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm curious when you deal with parents in your own life that are grappling with essentially this question of like, I don't want to send my kids to what they conceive of as a poor achieving school. Mm-hmm. And they have the resources to send them either to a private school, charter school, or, you know, a you know, a, a well-off school with resources that's mm-hmm. pretty much all white. How do you reconcile or how do you perceive that? I I just look at them and I don't say much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I don't know. There is really, there's no way to push on that, I think, as a fellow parent without immediately evoking defensiveness. Yeah. Um, especially because in some ways, I feel like I am living my values, right? Like I live in a part of town where my kids, like the I, we chose this neighborhood deliberately because there is a lot of racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity. It is not the highest performing elementary school in the district by a long shot. But like for, for me and my spouse, we were like, it's more important for us that our kid be exposed to lots of different kinds of people and learn how to empathize with lots of different kinds of people. And if there are gaps in education, which we don't think we are because our whole district is like wealthy and well-resourced, generally speaking, um, we can make those up at home because we are well-educated, resourced people, right? And mm. in the end, they all feed into the same high schools anyway as those like wealthy white, white elementary schools. So like, what's the difference? So I can feel a little bit smug. But then the reality is that I'm also full of shit, too, because like when it came time for us to buy a house, we chose this school district because it's an excellent school district. Right. We could have gone one town over where it is blacker and browner than it is here, probably bought a house for way less money and been like, we're going to commit to this. We didn't do that. Like, so I feel to answer your question, like I always feel a little bit just like, huh. And I don't want to like offend or push or anything. So I don't. But then I also have to recognize that I'm also just I'm also guilty of this. Right. So like I don't really have a right to feel that smug or that self-righteous. When you come when you're in a position of privilege, we all just have different places where we draw the lines. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to kind of like elevate this discussion to the level of policy, what we're talking essentially is the debate around 
um, public education, of course, but school choice, right? And that's mm-hmm. like the um, agenda of the current education secretary, Betsy DeVos. Um, mm-hmm. She's hanging her hat on it and this entire, and it, it's consistent with um, conservative ideas of pretty much everything. It fits within that framework of um, like, you know, like if you give people more choice, if you individualize these things, it's better for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same critiques against that, right? Which is choice is great if everybody is starting from the same starting point, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And what, what the research is showing, and I think the research here is interesting, is that if white people are living in areas where they're satisfied with their assigned school, mm-hmm. then they'll stay, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if they find that their school is too... Um, too diverse or they they don't meet that bliss point as in there aren't enough white students Mm -hmm. they will they will leave that and they will they will use and exercise their choice um to attend different schools right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and all of that choice is rooted in their resources and their ability to do that for their kids Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so essentially that is what's driving that segregation so and so in this report there was this line that said quote zones provide families of means with exclusive access to the schools they like, mm-hmm. while choice allows them to flee the ones they don't. Mm-hmm. And I think this report was pointing out that, of course, housing segregation has a lot to do with the segregation that we see in schooling, mm-hmm. but it is not the only factor. Like, it is a factor. And 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 the, the research is pointing out that this whole thing about school choice is also exacerbating it for exactly this reason. And that, in a nutshell, is the sort of policy conundrum that choice offers, right? Mm -hmm. That when you're talking about choice for families that don't have that same level of means, that's where the sort of exacerbation of inequities come from Mm -hmm. because choice is not evenly distributed among everybody, right? Right. right? And so that's an important, I think, like policy thing to keep in mind when we're listening to debates because granted, like especially among our circles and our friends, particularly like Asian Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Choice is a very, it's a very compelling thing. It's really hard to argue against. Even if I've seen this research, mm-hmm. it's hard for me in a just regular conversation for me to answer, wait, like a parent, like a friend that's a parent mm-hmm. to say, wait, wait, wait. So tell me what's wrong with me having the choice to send my kids to whatever school they want. Yeah. What's wrong with that? It's really hard to answer that with this body of research right 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 right. um because at the end of the day and this goes back to that whole line that uh, like people of privilege will experience equality and equity as a form of oppression right Uh that they in order for this to get better people that are accustomed to you know sending your kids to the best schools will have to experience maybe some some doubt on that maybe it won't be the case and i don't know i don't necessarily buy the argument that this is a zero-sum game Mm -hmm. actually Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly entertain the possibility that it might happen, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but again, like from from someone who doesn't have kids, who doesn't have to like face these very difficult decisions, as someone who just cares about equity broadly, mm-hmm. this is a very clear issue for me mm-hmm. from a macro standpoint. But yeah. I understand how difficult that is once you get into like having your own kid and thinking about their future and what you're potentially shaping them for mm-hmm. um so it's interesting to hear from you and your partner that you had to weigh these things and you weighed this idea of exposure to different people of different 
types of families as the most important thing. And I feel like a lot of a lot of families have to make that same choice if things are going to get better. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that your point about um, Asian Amer- bringing Asian Americans into the mix is really interesting and important, obviously because we are Asian American, but like we're not white, right? So it's easy right. in many ways for me to be like, oh, look at those asshole white parents. But I am all st- I'm still very privileged, right? Mm-hmm. Like my partner is white, so I benefit from this white adjacency, and so do my children. Um, we're well educated, like, mm-hmm. um, and my presence in a school and my kids' presence in a school will be seen as a quote unquote asset to the school versus a quote unquote uh, a ding on the school's reputation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really interesting to listen to a podcast like this and 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 feel like myself also like on both sides of it. You know what I mean? Like being the convictor and the convicted. It would be easy, I think, in some ways for some Asian American f- families to like listen to a podcast like this and be like, "Oh, we have this sweet loophole, right? Because we're not white, so we're not culpable, um, <laughs> but we're also." So like we can do whatever the fuck we want. And I don't right. think that's what th- that's, that is the, the correct way to be thinking about this. If you right. are, you know, like me, a cishet, well-educated East Asian person. Right, right. And, you know, in, in, in some ways, it may be even harder for us to locate ourselves in this discussion because a lot, especially second generation Asian Americans like us, mm-hmm. There are like our parents came with the express and explicit idea of our education. 100%. And so I was sent to private school from elementary to high school. And Mm. I did not really even understand what was happening to me while I was going through it. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, but that was, you know, now as an adult looking back at my parents who, who were, you know, like in their early to mid 30s making these decisions. It's not even a question about like, they're not going to respond well to a policymaker being like, hey, like you don't have a choice to do this because of equity, right? That's not going to land with them. And so they're absolutely going to pour everything into my and my sister's education Mm -hmm. um, to the extent of like paying for private school and doing all that, because that is the whole point of being here. And so a lot of us were raised with that ethic. And so now Mm -hmm. that our generation is raising kids, if we don't pause to examine the societal and systemic consequences or implications of the decisions we make with our own kids' schooling, then of course we're going to exercise that choice from a vantage point of like, obviously this is true. These are my kids. Obviously this is the case. And so I think one of the benefits of listening to this is that it's true we are not white parents but we also have this this we were given this ethic of educational choice mm-hmm. that still operates within this framework and it's important to understand and locate ourselves within that discussion yeah 100% i think, I think that's so i think that's such an important point that like this is for so many of us who are immigrants and children of immigrants, like this is like a foundational part of our worldview, right? Like our parents came here for this express purpose, as you said. And in my household, like education was religion. Everything was done in the name of like the best possible college application. I think those values are incredibly difficult to shake. 
And mm-hmm. I don't think it lets anyone off the hook. Kind of like we said before, like explains everything, excuses nothing. Mm-hmm. But I think that it it becomes especially difficult for those of us who find ourselves, you know, as like, you know, second generation success stories to then like go against this foundational part of like our worldview and like our whole family's narrative. Right. 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 Um, But it's, yeah, I think it's important for us to start that conversation because it's not something that I've heard a lot in our circles or in my Mm -hmm. circles, I would say, especially, right. It's, Mm -hmm. it's not examined critically. And I think that yeah, I think it's worth listening to nice white parents. And for everyone who thinks that this is like just a dead end, like as in, okay, this is like a immovable problem. I think one of the things that the podcast does do well is that it shows that history, there have been ups and downs on this issue, right? Mm-hmm. There's been mass segregation. There's been efforts at integration. We're living through a time of resegregation, like where we're not talking about this anymore. But the last episode, which I haven't quite finished yet, by the way, surprised um the the podcast anchor as in hey this school is doing something different right Mm -hmm. and we are looking at things through 2020 eyes and so um there are things that we can do um if it's a system that's been built it's a system that we can shape in a in a better way um yeah so i don't i don't know if if that sounded hollow i apologize but i think that there we have to leave it with some kind of hopeful note i had to leave it with some hopeful note otherwise yeah we're living in a future of just like segregated realities and that and as we've seen we we've seen the results and consequences of that i i think so i am with you on all of that i think the one thing like one of her concluding points spoiler alert at the end of the last episode is like white parents will only push for change when they also benefit from it yeah and that i think begs really interesting questions for what this looks like in cities that aren't new york city right so the white parents that she interviewed um who were pushing for change in the school like they were suffering from the system because they could not get their kids into the three best middle schools in their district, right? Mm-hmm. And so they also stood to gain from the system being changed. But like what happens in, say, like the city that I live in where I don't see an immediate gain for white parents to change the system except like, I don't know, feeling good about themselves for like being progressive. But I, I think, you know, as plenty of, as the last few months have shown, I think people are are not as interested in living up to their stated ideals as they are about what's best for their kids. Right. But here's hoping that this podcast starts a lot of conversations and gets white people thinking about the immense power they wield without even realizing it. <sighs> I feel like I got a lot off my chest that I've been holding in <laughs> the past. And you know, we didn't even we didn't even get to finish. We didn't even get to talk about Michelle's I Obama's know. podcast, which we'll have to weave into a future episode. But yes. Um that was basically it was uh, in so many ways it's been a fruitless summer, but in in other ways in terms of my media consumption, it's been very fruitful actually. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad mm-hmm. we finally got an opportunity to get that off our chest, right? Yes, same. <laughs> um, okay, so to wrap up, um, we have a really fun uh, top five this week. 
Um, we are in 2020 when everything's being reexamined mm-hmm. uh, through new eyes, 2020 eyes. Yes. And so some things have stood the test of time and some things have aged incredibly poorly. Yes. So this week we're talking about top five things have aged incredibly poorly. Okay, so Liz, uh, what's your top five? My number five is the show Friends. Ooh. Ooh. Fighting words. I know, I know. Um, it's only number five because it's still one of the best TV comedies of all time, still one of the best TV casts of all time. The jokes generally hold up. But watching this 90s show with 2020 eyes, you cannot help but see the problems. Yeah. Like, there are no people of color on this show. <laughs> and I understand that there are plenty of New Yorkers who have no friends of color, white New Yorkers who have no friends of color, but Even in the background, there are no people of color. Which is crazy in New York. Crazy in New York. And there are, okay, I'm thinking, I was thinking about like, who are the people of color I've saw on that show? There were two love interests, right? Like Lauren Tom for Ross early on, Aisha Tyler, I think again for Ross at the end. That museum staff person who yells, these aren't real in an early episode. (laughs) And that's it. And that's not at all realistic for a TV show set in New York at any time. Mm-hmm. And then the level of gay panic on this show yeah. is out of control. Like Chandler right. and Joey and Ross are constantly concerned about if they look gay or if their interactions are gay. And that kind of homophobia is so glaring now. Yeah. And I guess that's like maybe a nice reminder of how far we've come that like the vast majority of people I know are not concerned about whether or not they like quote unquote look gay or see it as any kind of problem. But like, I just want to sit these three down and be like, who the fuck cares? Get over yourselves. You should be so lucky if someone thought you were gay. Right. Friends. (laughs) Come on now. All right, my number four is the Sunday comics. So we got a Sunday paper by accident a few weeks ago, complete with a color comic section. And OMG, those comics have not held up. (laughs) Half of them are the ones that were around when we were kids reading the Sunday paper. And it's like, how is this still around? And also, how has it not evolved at all? Like the Lockhorns are still a thing. It was sexist and problematic back then, and it is still that toxic 30 years later. Like, what is going on in the mind of this cartoon artist? So that's my number four, Sunday comics. Uh, my number three is the Berenstein Bears. Wow. So Tell me more. We all remember the Berenstein Bears, those square paperback books of our youth. Yes. I don't remember reading a ton of them, but my younger brother apparently collected them because my parents had like a billion and gave them all to my kids who are obsessed with them. But reading them now in my 30s, I have eyes to see that they are sexist, racist trash. Wow. I have, you know what? I need to revisit it because I grew up with Berenstein Bears and I have only fond memories and I need to revisit this. I mean, I can see their utility for sure, right? Like, It's very helpful, I understand now, when your kid is 
going to the doctor and scared of it, like to have a book that's like, here's how, here's what happens at the doctor and here's what happens at the dentist. And here's what happens when you try out for a sports team. Like I see the utility, but these are the most gendered children's books I have ever seen, which is saying something because I grew up in the eighties and I also worked in children's books for a while. Every character is so gendered and just like the casual throwaway ideas that are just said, like, In the book, No Girls Allowed, Mama Bear says that it's a problem that Sister Bear is better than Brother Bear and all of his friends at everything. What? Yeah. And they make all these like cursory gestures towards feminism, like Mama Bear starts a business in one book and in another, she's like elected mayor. But all of these storylines end as soon as the book is over. And then in the next book, she goes back to being like a nagging housewife. (laughs) I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I almost bought a Berenstein Bears book for my friend's daughter one time, and this is this yeah, is very problematic. Truly, truly, truly. I'm glad you did not because these books are also racist. There's this recurring bully character named Tutal who has like a crew, and in the book called Trouble with Grownups, all the cubs are preparing for like a school talent show, and Tutal's crew, uh, Tutal's crew is rapping, and Teacher Bob is not happy about it. That is in the text, and there is a drawing of these boys rapping and Teacher Bob looking with angry eyes at the rapping that is happening. Oh, my. Um, But anyway, so problematic. It was not surprising at all to learn that the Berensteins were like fundamentalist Christians. They they have like a ton of Christian kids books and kids Bibles and stuff. But it is a hot mess, and I am glad that they do not seem to be a thing anymore because I don't know anybody else whose kids are reading this besides mine. Embarrassing bears. Canceled. Canceled. All right. My number two is the idea or Facebook claiming that it is a force for good in the world. Oh, that is so old now. Yo, there was a time when it was reasonable to think this, that like the idea of like connecting people would be this force for good. And in some ways... I mean, yeah, I guess it was cool to reconnect with old friends. Online community is good, et cetera, et cetera. But Facebook cannot allow the kind of government destabilizing misinformation run rampant on its site unchecked and still claim to be a force for good in the world. They are literally like facilitating the fall of democracy in the Western world. And Zuckerberg's claims that they are still a force for good while he actively refuses to check the content on the site is unacceptable. Yo, that did not age well. No. (laughs) Um, And my number one is the movie Crash. (sighs) If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that Chris and I hate the movie Crash. It was not good when it won the Oscar for Best Picture in 2005. It is especially terrible now when society at large is starting to understand that racism is systemic and not just an issue of individuals being racist. But the whole moral of the movie Crash is that racism is perpetuated by individual acts of meanness. (laughs) It is a depiction of race that only a white director and two white writers could have come up with. It was trash when it came out in 2004, and it is even worse now. 
truly, 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 truly. Yo, your list is so fire. I feel oh, like that's it just, so nice of you to say. Oh my god. It picked up it picked up it picked, it started strong and just picked up momentum with the Barristine Bears. It's like <laughs> Um, I want to hear your list. Oh, go sorry. I feel like my I feel like my list pales in comparison. But number five are pretty much all of Donald Trump's tweets when oh, he was yeah. like when he was like trying to be this provocateur during the Obama years. Uh-huh. There is actually set up like you should go on the site sometime if you can stomach it. Um, Trump criticizing Trump or Trump tweeting Trump. Um, but pretty much every single thing that he criticized Obama for, which of course Obama didn't do, uh-huh. Trump is just doing in spades right now. And it's yeah. just, it, it's an account that's just basically like Trump is criticizing himself, basically yeah. like using their old, old tweets to criticize himself. Mm-hmm. My favorite one was when he called for the impeachment and removal of Obama because there were four Ebola cases in the United States. Oh my God. That that's probably that one takes the cake for me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Number four, I feel like any kind of stand-up comedy from like the eighties, <laughs> possibly even the nineties, did not age well. Yes, <laughs> this is this is correct. Um, one example, of course, is Eddie Murphy, who is I think just talent by talent, probably the best stand-up like I've ever seen like he's mm-hmm. so talented he does impersonations mm-hmm. he's you know we had our top five stand-up comics and he easily would have made it onto my top five except for the fact that his set aged so poorly yeah oh my gosh yeah um but yes it's true that uh that the stand-up that was a product of its time mm-hmm. is not necessarily a good reflection yeah. of things and aged very poorly. Number three, if you go back and you you would know this because you've watched almost every Oscars show, I'm sure going back, but every time they thanked Harvey Weinstein, oh, did yeah. not oh my God. age well at all, oh, right? Yeah. Even yeah. favorites, even our favorites, like especially like Brad Pitt and uh-huh. him just like going in on like Harvey, we thank you for everything. It, it, it's pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, for me personally, Bill Clinton. Oh, that that fantastic choice. Wow. Um, that is a great choice. I think we've talked about this before, but I am not a fan of Bill Clinton at all. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of things. And I'm, you know, I'm not as, I, I think it's fair to love these critiques about his crime bill, for example, that he signed that led to mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. The repeal of Glass-Steagall, which had a very direct hand in the housing and the collapse of the financial industry in 2008. Mm-hmm. But you can say that, hey, he signed bills that Congress passed. There was like a part of, mm-hmm. like, there was a, it was part of our politics at the time. Mm-hmm. So you can't just hang that all on him. Um, but this thing about Lewinsky, especially in 2020 eyes, mm-hmm. is atrocious. Truly. Is a- atrocious. But the idea, you know, like, we understand a lot more now about like men in power mm-hmm. and in, you know, preying upon women that they have, you know, like that that you know there's that power dynamic in the workplace Mm -hmm. and you know whether it was you know consensual or not whether it was um whether it was infidelity or whatever it was whether he lied about it Mm -hmm. this is the point that this like what how old was she 20 24 she was a baby she She was was a child 
she was a child and like there they, i don't know i don't have to rehash all that but i don't i don't that's something that i can't look over and i feel like i'm only looking at it now through like you know not even recently but like you know ever since like me too came out and all yes. that i feel like he's getting some kind of a weird slide on yes. all this stuff and yes. no no yeah Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. I will try to keep them short. Number one, completely agree. Several people were like, why does he get any speaking time at all at the DNC in this oh, era? my God. Um, number two, for an excellent deep dive into this, highly recommend Slow Burn Season 2, which I believe we both listened to. Is that we right? We did. Mm-hmm. And was a f- to look at that 90s story with 2020 eyes, it is just appalling and i say this as somebody who you know can also recognize that like clinton did a lot of good things for america but Mm -hmm. it oh yeah men with power preying on women with no power um and the third thing that's really interesting is that monica Lewinsky did an interview or no she wrote a piece for vanity fair post me too she has always maintained that this was not an abuse of power, that she was uh, an, a, consent, a consenting adult, et cetera, et cetera. But then she was like, in, the, in light of Me Too, I can no longer answer that as clearly. And I right. w- thought that that was very interesting that yes. like she has had to also, she had a narrative of what happened in her head and this moment has caused her to reflect on if that, if her narrative is actually more complicated than that. Right. And I think the shift that she went through is reflective of the shift that I think society more broadly went through. Sure, and yes. Understand, and yes. how we understand this kind of thing. And yeah. it took time. It took time mm-hmm. to get there. Mm-hmm. But yes, that's where yeah. I've landed on Bill Clinton. Uh, excellent choice. Excellent choice. Number one, what tops Bill Clinton is uh-huh. the movie Crash. Shut up! It is my number one. Shut up! <laughs> We've done it. We finally got the same number one. That is so crazy. And it is by far my number one. That that is the level of pure hatred I have for this movie. And, you know, I can only say that because (laughs) when I first watched Crash, Uh I loved it. I thought it was so profound. And so, and how old, I mean, it's embarrassing to even think about right now, but I thought, oh, and I remember when it won the Oscar, I was just like, yeah, slow clap. Like, you know, we finally talking about race, right? And then I learned something about racism and race. Mm. And I'm like, this movie, I remember even though I I liked the movie when it first came out, I remember thinking, hey, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed in the way they portrayed Asian people in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. I feel mm-hmm. like there are a lot of us. And just to, you know, like just say that we were human traffickers essentially yeah seems kind of like a narrow interpretation of people like mm-hmm. you know no no nuance there whatsoever yeah. so i remember even then not having a problem with our de- like asians depiction in los angeles of all places mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. god but of course as i it grew up right and i rewatch I, I remember rewatching it one time and being like what is this hot pile of garbage shit burger what is this thing you know yeah um and i love the way that you've described like how they interpret race as just a series of bad whatever it's so contrived it's so written by white people mm-hmm. they they need to return that oscar asap because oh then they God. steal it from brokeback they did wasn't that the year yep 
it, it, that just makes it even worse. It's just yeah, Crash and Green Book should really just, just <laughs> send them back. Send them back. <sighs> we did it. We finally I got our that. number ones I together. Online. It. it only took 23 episodes for our ideas to converge. Right. And nothing bonds us more than our hatred for Crash. Truly. Truly. Well, since we've been um, since we've been dragging all these um, things that have not aged well, mm. I thought maybe we can turn that on ourselves a little bit. And yes. Maybe next week we can talk about top five embarrassing and awkward moments that we've gone through. I'm ready. I'm ready to confess. <laughs> There's just so many to choose from. There's I'm not so even sure. so many, truly. Ah, okay. Well, this was fun. Let's do it again sometime. <gasps> See you in two weeks. Did yeah. we get it? <laughs> <laughs>